Good morning, everyone. Fourth and fifth graders, you're dismissed to your class. Fourth and fifth graders, you can go on to your class. I don't know when it happened. If you're older, a little bit older, you might remember sort of a tipping point when it feels like. Now, I'm not saying it's the reality, but that at least feels like uh, you're older than everybody else. Remember that moment where it feels like everyone you come in contact with, everyone you see on TV, they're all younger than you, and it happens to, I mean, all sorts of uh, ways for me. I remember uh, I had an older doctor who got transferred to administration at the hospital, and so I got a brand new doctor, and he walked in one time and introduced himself, and I'm sure he told me his name, but all I could think about was Doogie Hauser was the only thing that I could think of. And if you don't understand that joke, it's proving my point that I'm older than everybody else. It happens to me when I watch sports, that I'm watching all the athletes, and it dawns on me, you are older than every single person on both teams. Like, in the NFL, if it were not for Jason Hansen, who's a kicker of the Lions, he's 42 years old, but he is the only four-year-old in the NFL, and it's discouraging to me. It's depressing. It's even worse when the commentators all talk and analyze, like, well, you know, he's 32 now, so he's kind of at the end of his, I'm like, 32? Come on. And the worst is watching the Olympics for women's gymnastics because in that, they talk like if the girl turns 20 years old, then she's somehow ancient and <laughs> decrepit. But there's a tipping point, it seems, when all of your stories of achievement or success or glory or ability tend to be in the past tense. The next thing you know, you're saying things like, well, you know, when I was younger, I used to be able to or... Well, you should have seen me back when I was in my 20s. I mean, I'm telling, I mean, it, those, and there's something that just seems sad and depressing when that shift to the past tense in tone takes place. And I kind of feel that way a little bit when I watch uh, the Hall of Fame inductions. And it doesn't matter what sport, but what usually happens, I don't know if you've ever watched them on like ESPN, where they show the highlight reels of the person's career, and they're in their prime, like great physical shape, you know, strong, fast, powerful, great stamina. And then after the highlight reel, then the inductee gets up to the podium to make their speech. And as soon as they do, it's very clear, oh, yeah, they've clearly aged and they're no longer at their peak. And we're left to admire what they once were able to do. But we don't expect them now. I mean, not at their present age. I mean, nobody expects the 50-year-old ex-lineman to tackle a quarterback or the 60-year-old ex-running back to be able to run 40 meters in under 10 seconds. But we do love and appreciate what they did and what they accomplished and how they performed in the past. And we have great respect and admiration. We have no problem celebrating their past accomplishments, but we have very little expectation of a repeat performance. And unfortunately, it seems to me that far too many Christians think and treat God like he's a Hall of Famer. Like, we admire God for what he did 2,000 years ago. I mean, do you remember, like, thousands of years ago when he, like, he parted the Red Sea? That was an amazing story. Or do you remember that time when he healed all those sick people? Or he brought the dead back to life again? Remember that one time when he made the sun stand still? Like, that was awesome. I mean, we have those, what he used to do. And we read our Bibles at times as if it were an ESPN highlight reel of God's amazing and stunning career as God. And we don't mind even gathering together weekly to celebrate his accomplishments, especially, I don't know if you remember that one 2,000 years ago where Jesus came and died on a cross to take away our sins. But now we don't really expect God to do any of those cool things today. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. We believe the Bible. We love the stories. Remember the one with Jesus walked on water? I mean, come on. That's crazy. And remember when he took those uh, the, the few fish and a few loaves of bread, and then he fed like thousands of people? It was amazing. But 2,000 years later, I mean, come on. We have very little hope or anticipation or expectation that God's going to show up to do those things today. It's almost as if we treat God as if he's retired. That the God that existed 2,000 years ago and seem to be so deeply involved in the affairs of the earth, is really not the same God that we have today. That God, while impressive, he seems to somewhere along the way sold his miraculously involved in the affairs of humans business and is now eternally sipping his pina coladas enjoying eternal retirement. We have become what I would call functional deists. And I don't know if you ever heard the, fra- the, the phrase or the word deist, but it, in short it means this. A deist is somebody who has to acknowledge that there's got to be a creator. Like they look around the world, they see everything in terms of beauty and order, and they they just can't bring themselves to believe this is by accident or happenstance. So they believe in some sort of intelligent designer, some sort of creator in which they call God. They are deist in that. However, they believe that at that same time that God created, he set in motion what would be real physical laws of the universe that regulate and order the universe from then on out. Meaning then the creator God stepped in, created, but then he stepped out and he's no longer necessary. He's sort of retired in some sense. He's not really personally involved in the intimate details of his creation anymore because he set up these physical laws of the universe. In fact, many of uh, America's earliest founding fathers were deists. However, the Bible refutes this idea completely. That the worldview of the Bible is that, oh no, it's an open heaven. And it's a heaven and an earth that intersect and do so often, that the physical and the spiritual cross each other and affects one another. And just because one sometimes remains invisible to our eye doesn't make it any less real, that there is a God that exists, and he is heavily involved in his creation. And there are spiritual entities, things like angels and demons. These are spiritual realities that affect the physical world. And you just can't point to anything in the Bible that would indicate that God planned on one day being very active and then going into retirement. God did not retire, and he isn't a Hall of Famer. That the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That same Jesus, the one who walked on water, is the same Jesus today. That same Jesus who's able to multiply the fish and the bread, same one we have today. That same Jesus that were able to heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out demons, it's the same one. Same one today. And what strikes me is, though, as God's people, when we don't expect God to do anything, or when we don't anticipate that he's really going to do anything, or when we don't have faith to believe that rather than retiring, he really is actually quite concerned and involved in my life in a real and personal way, then when we don't expect those things, what I've come to discover is we don't ask for those things. Like, I don't ask things of people that I don't think they're either will or capable of doing, right? We all live like that. You don't ask people that you don't think can or will to do something. Like, that's why nobody calls me and asks me to come over to help them fix their car, or repair something in their house. Because everyone knows Sam's an idiot and he cannot do those things. That's what, right? And if we begin to point to God and say that he can't or won't do those sorts of things, we'll just stop asking. And in the end, then we won't expect him to do great things or to perform miracles or to do things like heal the sick or to be actively involved in our life, to give real and tangible guidance 
or to literally rescue us in matters of health or relationships or finances. And when we think he won't, then we simply won't ask him anymore. And a church then that in the end has no expectations, no anticipations, no hope, no faith that their God is still alive and active is a church that is dead. Even if it's growing, it's dead. It's nothing more than a museum where interested onlookers come to see and hear about the cool old things that exist in the museum. And some museums, of course, are hipper and cooler and more contemporary than others, but it's still a museum. And worship in a museum is just as dead as the artifacts it displays. What we're entering into this Sunday, this morning, is what's called Advent. It's a liturgical religious calendar where we enter and it goes up to to Christmas Day and the four Sundays preceding it, we call it Advent. And Advent comes with ideas and themes. One is this idea of preparing ourselves to expect God's arrival. You see how that goes up to Christmas Day? It's that idea that we are expecting God to break in and to do something, that the earth is broken and it is somehow there's wrong and God is going to do something about it and make it right. It's this idea that we can expect God and anticipate God to do something. And that's why then what we celebrate on Christmas Day is God has broken into history in the person of Jesus, in baby Jesus, to make what was wrong right. And at the time of Jesus' birth, the people of God found themselves in a very desperate state. Like, the thing about the anticipation, expecting God to show up, I mean, this is very real. In the days when Jesus was born, God's people, the Jewish people, they were living in a desperate state. They were not free or independent. There was not a free state of Israel. In fact, they had been occupied by foreign armies and powers for quite some time. It began with the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks and then the days of Jesus, the Romans. And they were living under military occupation. What that means practically is is that their resources, their personal resources, were oftentimes extorted for the good and sake of the occupying state. What that meant is that they often lived in poverty and had great restrictions and at times the forfeiture of their time or possessions, the loss of religious freedoms and customs, sometimes even persecution and death. It was desperate and it didn't look good and it would appear that God had in fact retired if not forgotten them altogether. Yet in the days of Jesus what we see is even in their oppression and even in their desperate state, they kept praying for and expecting God to act. They kept reminding each other that, no, God is going to do something. He will make right this wrong. And in the midst of the silence, they encouraged each other to anticipate God breaking into the world, and they looked forward to God's miraculous intervention. So my question for you this morning will be, as we enter into the Advent season, what are we expecting God for? What are we doing in regards to our own anticipations? Do we believe? Do we have faith to think that God is going to miraculously break into our lives and to do what seems to us like the impossible? Because each one of us has something in life that feels like the impossible. It's the, there's no way that that situation's ever going to change. There's no way that this circumstance is ever going to get any better. There's no way that that person, I mean, it's the impossible. And it's to have faith and hope to believe that God can break in and he could do the impossible because our God is in the impossible business and he has never retired from it. It's what Jesus says, even in our story of Luke chapter 1, verse 37, this is as the angels telling Mary, you're going to bear the Christ child. He says in verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. I mean, I know this sounds crazy, but with God, it's not crazy. Everything is possible for him. 
And Jesus will later say to his disciples in Mark chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And I know it might be dark now, and it might feel like you're living under occupation. It might feel like God has been silent for some time. But in the midst of it, can there be a growing sense of expectation and anticipation? Can we still have a triumphant faith emerging that's able to say, it doesn't matter what Goliath seems to be standing in front of you, oh, oh no, my God is bigger than you, and he will have the last word, and I will have victory in this circumstance. It's that spirit, it seems, of expectancy that fuels the earliest disciples with great faith to ask God for big things. Like, I don't see in the Bible the earliest Christians thinking, well, I don't know if God can do that. I mean, it's like they just step out with huge faith and bold expectations and anticipations, and it fuels them. In the midst of that, God's very much active and alive and in their midst and at work. And it seems that Jesus himself just stokes that idea among us. You don't ever see Jesus going, well, you know, I mean, this is the heyday right here, but I'm going to go back to God, and then things are going to kind of wind down. You're going to get the Bible, so let's not ask for much. Or exp- I mean, Jesus doesn't say that at all. In fact, he seems to set us up to continue to have huge expectations. He'll say to his disciples, this is in John chapter 14, verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. For very truly I tell you, listen to this, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. You hear what Jesus says? Those who believe in me are going to do the things that I'm doing. Remember Jesus? What, the things he did? And not only that, he says this, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Like, you just don't see Jesus saying, so let's kind of tone down the expectations for God because he's going to try to slow down the business. No, I mean, Jesus seems to indicate, oh, no. I mean, even, listen, I'm going back to the Father, and when I do, I'm going to give to you the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, you're going to be empowered for a life of great faith and expectancy and a miraculous kind of life. And when you read in the whole book of Acts, what you see is a church empowered by the Holy Spirit, both expecting, anticipating, and asking God God to do great and amazing, miraculous things, and it's happening all around them that God does. And nothing in the story of Acts would point to, now these are going to be the glory days, but they're going to wind up in a little bit here. But no, he's not retiring. The Bible from the very beginning to the end speaks of a God who, because of his crazy love for us, never plans on retiring that the early church lived in what's called that open heaven. And far too often we find ourselves, though, living a life of faith where we're like under a brass ceiling, where I'm not sure my prayers are making it out of the room, let alone to the throne room of God. And we've allowed many things to keep us under, I think, this brass ceiling. Let me me give you three of them, things that have kind of influenced us to kind of not expect much from God or to ask much of God, to have kind of a tempered faith. I'd say one is science. And I'm not anti-science. I'm a big fan of science. I think the church needs to hear science, and it speaks truth. And so I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is there is at times a particular philosophy within science that cuts out the possibility of divine intervention. And oftentimes it doesn't have the things necessary to measure aspects of faith or divine intervention. But here's how I see it play out practically in my own life. Like if one of the kids gets sick, what do I do? Let's call the doctor. And what do I want the doctor to do? Prescribe some medicine, maybe an antibiotic, something like that. And then along the line, if it gets worse, then what do I do? Well, maybe I ought to pray about that, right? Now, do you see the ordering? Now, I'm not saying don't call the doctor. If your kid's sick, call the doctor. 
And I'm not saying don't take medicine. If you need medicine, take medicine. What I'm asking is, as a person of faith, don't you think one of my first initial responses ought to be when my kids get sick, maybe to go to the great physician, the Jesus who seems to be a great healer, and to say, I need you to heal my children. And, and that's sometimes, I wonder if that just kind of a slow, I didn't mean, no one means to go that. You just kind of that slow fade into, I don't expect much of God until it gets really, really bad, and I really need him. But the second thing is not just science. The church itself, many times, is its own worst enemy in terms of faith and expectation. Like, I know we all have different church backgrounds and different experiences, but the church that I grew up in taught that miracles don't happen anymore, and we shouldn't expect them. Like, and in fact, if anyone said they were experiencing a miracle, they were clearly false in some particular way. And the reason was because miracles were, the only reason for miracles was to authenticate the words of Jesus and the apostles, and now we have the Bible. So we don't need miracles anymore because we've got, we got the Bible. And that's what I was taught growing up, which is, you know, I guess all good and well until, from personal experience, until your oldest son, before he turns two years of age, is diagnosed with a rare form of kidney cancer, and you discover, I need something more than the Bible right now. Like, this Bible is not going to heal my son's cancer. What I need is the Jesus of the Bible to come and heal my son of this cancer right now. And those are two totally different things. The third thing, though, is not only science and the church itself, but sometimes just our own painful experiences in this. And I want to say a lot more about this next week because we have to go here if we're going to really talk about expecting miracles. But sometimes it really is this that we really did hope for and pray and expect and anticipate and prepare for that we did have faith and God didn't show up and he didn't answer and there was no miracle. Miranda still died, that the marriage still ended. And if we're not careful, what happens is these three things, when they come together, they can produce in us a dead faith that expects nothing, that hopes nothing, that, that it doesn't anticipate anything and it doesn't ask for anything. Well, I mean, you've ever seen a miracle? I can't remember the last time I asked for one. Sometimes I wonder, uh, it's not to be flippant, but sometimes I wonder if the reason why we don't see greater miraculous things in our life, bigger things, more powerful things from God, is simply because we just don't ask. Like, bottom line, we just don't ask. We don't expect, so we just don't ask Him for those sorts of things. There's a sentence that's in James chapter 4, verse 2. The context, there's, there's Christians who are fighting because they're lacking things, they're jealous of, of one another, and so, you know, they don't have, there's kind of quarrels and fighting. But James comes and he says this at the end of verse 2. He says, you don't have because you don't ask God. Just that simple. You don't have because you don't ask. And I started thinking about that in my own life, how many things that I've complained about or whined about. And if you're at, well, did you ask God? The answer is, no, actually, I don't. I actually don't think I did ask God for that. Well, you don't have because you don't ask. And I, I mean, I don't want to carry it to its simplistic form, but I'm just saying, in the end, maybe we ought to just, inc- maybe we should just at least ask. That way we'll put it on him if we don't see it. I mean, it's on God because I did my part in terms of asking. To remind ourselves what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, where he says this, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you for anyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Now, I love this illustration, right? I mean, Dad, I'm hungry. Well, here, eat this rock. I mean, who does that? Or if your son asks for a fish, well, here's a snake. I know Jesus says, if you then, though you are evil, which I like they just write out there, you are evil, <laughs> and even you know how to give good gifts to your children when they ask, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? 
and I can't answer everything. And in the end, I still have to bow to the sovereignty of God, even if I don't understand it. But at the very least, I don't want to miss out on something because I lack the faith to at least ask for it. I don't want to live my life with God having no expectation or no anticipation. I want to believe. I want to have faith. I want to ask for and expect miracles in my life. And if it doesn't seem like I'm receiving them, then I I won't have any problem going to God with his own words and saying, oh, no, this is who you are, and this is what you promised. Psalm 77 verse 14 says, you are the God who performs miracles, that you display your power among the peoples. And sometimes circumstances just drives us to that place. I mean, I remember years ago, uh, Julie Markson was a part of our congregation, and she was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And as soon as you say that, everyone goes, oh, that's the bad one. Like, hope just immediately goes down. No one knows what to do with that. And we were back in the rock star room, just a whole group of people. We were praying over Julie Marks, and everyone's upset and discouraged and scared, all those sorts of things. And I'll never forget, in that room, all these people praying, I'll never forget, Ron Cox says out loud in front of everybody, God, I want to pray that when Julie, now Julie had been diagnosed here in South Bend, had the scans, and they were sending her to Indianapolis for the surgery and treatment and stuff like that. And Ron Cox says out loud, he says, when Julie gets to Indianapolis, I pray that the doctors won't be able to find any cancer. And as soon as he said it, I thought to myself, good grief. I mean, that's big. I mean, that's, you know, you get a little nervous for God. Oh, I hope you can pull through on that one. I mean, (laughs) if he would just said, guide the doctor's hands, we could be all right, but take it away completely. So that next weekend, my wife and I, we were in St. Louis. There was a spiritual growth conference there that we were attending. But my parents went with Julia Markson to Indianapolis for just the process of what was going on. And I got a call in the middle of one of the sessions. It was from my parents. You know, they got on the phone. They're all excited to let me know that when they got there, they once again did more scans and more tests, and they couldn't find a single cancer cell in Julie's body. None. And still today, not a single cancer cell. Like, yeah, that's good. Like, I'll never forget when Linda Templeton was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Same thing. Everyone gets all, oh, no, not that's kind of nervous. But right in the back of this room, I remember just a whole circle of us just kind of praying over Linda just, and asking God to take away, like just to heal Linda of that cancer. Like we just knew, right? I mean, that everything has a name. Jesus has a name, and his name has more authority and more power than any other name. He, so it's more powerful than cancer, right? I mean, cancer has to yield to Jesus, the name of Jesus. And so we just prayed for for her just to be, and that's so we went to Memorial Hospital for the surgery, and I remember, we, I still remember, sitting there in the waiting room with Randy and a whole bunch of us there, and the surgeon coming out after the surgery, coming out to say, well, we couldn't, we, we couldn't find anything, like, I had to try to awkwardly explain why we were even there for surgery, because they couldn't find anything, and I just, I know God healed Linda, I mean, we asked for that, and when we were at it, I just knew he was going to come through with that. And I want us to have those stories all over the place, of stories of God's power and authority, stories of how Jesus rescued and invaded, stories of miracles, and, and that those stories that would build in others anticipation and expectancy and faith that God can and will do a miracle in their life as well. So let me ask again, what is it in your life that you need God to show up for? Like, what are you praying and asking God for? What are you in this moment, you're waiting on Him for this, what is the desperate cry of your heart and your situation that if God doesn't show up, then you, I don't know where else I'm going to turn. Or maybe it's the thing in your life you quit asking. Like you're tired of asking, God didn't seem to be answering, so you just stopped. Uh, maybe this month as we enter into our Advent season, we might dare to step out once more and to ask God for something big and bold and miraculous 
because I know there are people in the room right now who have health issues that they need a miracle from God to recover from. Maybe you're struggling with some sort of chronic health issue that's stealing from you joy or abundant life, and you've become so used to it and just dealing with it, you don't even remember the last time you asked God to take it away from you and to heal you. It could be anything from diabetes to COPD to some asthmatic condition or cancer or heart disease. Maybe this will be the month where we might just all together as a church step out and ask God to come through with a miracle to heal finally, once and for all, that health condition. Or maybe it's another area of health. Maybe if maybe it's you know, some chronic clinical depression. You've tried all these different medications and shifting the prescriptions, but but doesn't seem to be able to really lift you out, out of that depression that's kind of holding you down and, and kind of causing you great anxiety. Or maybe it is an anxiety disorder or, or panic attacks. Maybe you're afflicted with that, and I mean, just the idea of having another one causes panic in itself. Maybe it's the paralyzing effects of OCD or a bipolar disorder. Maybe this is the month that we just come and say, listen, Jesus, your name is more powerful than any other name, and we're in that name asking for a miracle. Or maybe it might be for someone that you love. It's not you. Maybe it's for a loved one. Maybe your wife or your husband. Maybe it's your parent, a brother or sister. Maybe it's your child. It could be a range of anything, right? I mean, from dealing with uh, Alzheimer's to epileptic seizures to some sort of cancer, fibromyalgia, whatever. I mean, maybe this is the month where we just step in great faith and boldly say, listen, we need you to act and act now with a great miracle. Or maybe for you it's a child that's on drugs and continually in and out of jail and in trouble for stealing and you're so tired and it seems so hopeless to you. And really, if you were to tell the story to all of your friends, they'd go, yeah, that sounds pretty hopeless, that you know the only way this is turning around is if there is a bona fide Jesus intervening miracle. That Maybe this is the month where we get a bona fide Jesus intervening miracle. Or maybe it's in your marriage. It's kind of hanging on by a thread and it's lifeless and terrible. There's no joy or peace. You're fighting all the time. Or worse, it's just the perpetual silent treatment all the time. You've gone to counseling. You've read the books. You've adjusted the behaviors and still nothing. Maybe this is one, no, this is the month where we need God to break in and change everything and turn this around with a miracle. Maybe it's in the area of your finances. There's nothing like mismanagement, like the medical bills are still coming in. Um, You didn't ask for this, and here they are. They're overwhelming, and the car breaks down again. Or maybe it's your hours cut at work, or maybe your spouse has been unemployed for years, and all the stuff that comes with that. And maybe this is the month where we Let's just step out and ask God for a big, fat, bona fide, Jesus-causing miracle. Sometimes we live in that space, just like in the days of Jesus' birth, that things aren't okay, and I'm not all right. I feel like my life is under some occupying force that isn't bringing me peace and joy, but I'm going to choose in the midst of it to live in expectation and anticipation and hope and faith that Jesus is going to show up and give to me the miracle I so desperately need. My question for you today is, what is the miracle you need? I like the story. It's in Matthew chapter 8. It's of a leper. It starts in verse 1. It says that Jesus comes down from a mountainside. Of course, there's large crowds all around him. But the attention goes to this man with leprosy who comes and he kneels before Jesus and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There's something in the humility of that I really appreciate, that I know that you can. Like, if, you, if you're willing, I know that you can make me clean. 
And I love Jesus' response where he just, he just reaches out his hand and he touches the man. He says, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately he's clean, cleansed of his leprosy. That's what I'm curious about for us today. Like, what is that thing that we'll just humbly come to Jesus? In humility, get on our knees. and just say, We know, Lord, that if you're willing, you can. What would that be in your life right now? Here's what we're going to do, and I know this could be a huge step or risk for many in this room, but there are sheets of paper in the seat in front of you that I'm going to ask you to grab one, and a pencil or a pen, and on it just says, uh, the miracle I'm asking God for, and then fill in the blank. What I'd like you to do is to maybe step out and just write down on that sheet of paper, what is the impossible thing going on in your life right now that you are desperate for God to act and to intervene? What is that thing that you need God to show up for that at this moment he's not shown up just yet? And, and it could be all sorts of things that we've been talking about. But here's what we're going to do. Then as a church, we're going to collect these things. You see on the communion tables here, we've got our bread and cup and those sorts of things, but there's little red baskets. I'm going to ask you to take some time to write on that sheet of paper and then fold it over and then just drop it in those red baskets. And then we're going to, on these two signs here, on the sides here, start to tack those things up. And if you want to sign your name to it, that'd be great. If you want to be anonymous, just be anonymous. If you're worried about someone recognizing your handwriting, we're going to take these and retranscribe them, either type them or rewrite them so no one will see that it's your handwriting, so you'll, you'll be safe in that if you really need that kind of protection. But I, I'm asking you just to write down what is that thing in your life that you need God to break in for. And then just this entire month, we're going to pray together in agreement. Like, I'm going to be praying, our elders will be praying, our prayer team will be praying, our staff will be praying for asking God to do the things that God does, that he's in the impossible business and to make all things possible, that we might have as a church story after story of God's intervention and miraculous work among us, that when we put something on the the roof that says expect a miracle it's not like trite because it's Christmas no we mean really our God is in the miracle business and we'll bow in the end to God's sovereignty but at least we're not going to be guilty of not asking with faith and expectation and, and so I'm going to just fill that just take some time now just fill out those sheets of paper just anything that I mean that you just, whether it could be a relationship that I need a miracle in this it could be a health issue in your life to ask God for. Maybe it's an addiction. Like you've had it for years. You've asked God before. I get it. I get it. You've asked Him before. But this is now is the month we want to see God not only take away that addiction, but even the desire for the I mean, it's just gone. Just gone. And we'll receive a miracle. And I know because of our experiences, this can be very difficult for some. Like, this is a huge trust issue with God to dare to put it back on this sheet of paper. I get that. I get it. So communion here is this perfect place for us to come to Jesus to say, if you're willing. It's in communion that Jesus has promised to meet us in some real and tangible ways in the symbols of bread and grape juice. He's invited us, all of us. So, I mean, everyone is welcome to his table here today. Like, I don't care if it's your first time here. I don't care if you think you deserve it or not. I don't even care what you did last night. Like, you are welcome to his table. He is inviting you. I think about that for a moment. Jesus is inviting you to his table. That same miracle-working Jesus who did all those things 2,000 years ago is the same Jesus today. The one that the Bible tells us that all has authority in all of heaven and on earth 
That's the one who's invited us to this table. And so I want to encourage you to come, and we're going to commune with one another. What that means is, hey, if you bump into people want to give a high five or a handshake or a hug, or that, that, that's no problem with that during communion. But we're also going to commune with God. And I would encourage you as you take of the bread and take of the cup, lean in with that sheet of paper, drop it in the basket, and just simply say to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can. And then this month, let's expect great, powerful, miraculous things. Here's the last note in this is, when God does answer your prayer and your request and grant you that miracle, please communicate that. Call the office, send an email, go to our Facebook wall. You could post it there or write it down next week on the connection card or whatever it happens. But we want to hear these stories and celebrate God answering our prayers and allow it to then feed our faith and produce in us greater joy and worship and expectation. But we're going to take communion now. And when you're done taking, you're invited to go back and continue to stand and to sing and to celebrate that our God really is still alive and he is not dead. So, Father, we come to you and just pray that you glorify yourself in this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name.